This episode of American Honings Podcast is brought to you by PenPath. PenPath gives marketing teams and organization the power to lead with data. Their business intelligence dashboards are easy to use, automated, and customized to your needs. I've worked with PenPath on multiple projects, and they are great at really listening to their customers and helping businesses get their products in front of the right audience. Get the complete story for your business by centralizing and accessing all of your data from agencies, departments, and platforms. Learn more at PenPath.com. That's P-E-N-P-A-T-H.com. Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and today we are launching a brand new season called Murdered in Their Beds. It's an in-depth look at the Midwest axe murders of the early 20th century, the transient butcher who carried out those horrific crimes, and the way they changed the small railroad towns of the region forever especially the town of Villisca, Iowa, which has been home to a house that has been called one of the most haunted in America since 1912. This will be a season like nothing we've attempted before. And by the time it's finished, we know that you, like the people who lived in the small towns of the Midwest in the early 1900s, will never look out into the nighttime darkness in the same way again. Lock your doors. Season three begins now. The evening of June 9th, 1912, was a warm one in southwestern Iowa, and the town of Villisca stirred quietly in the gloom of the setting sun. The dinner hour was past, and many residents escaped to the cool of the front porch after the heat of the day had started to settle. Stores were closed up for the evening, and oil and gas lights began to appear in the windows of homes along the darkening streets. The electricity in town had been shut off because of a dispute between the town council and the electric company, but for most, the evening was too nice to stay indoors anyway. At the First Presbyterian Church on 3rd Avenue, music filtered to the street outside, along with laughter and quiet applause. The Children's Day program came to an end around 9.30 p.m., and soon parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, and the children that performed began trickling out into the street, heading for home. Sarah Moore, who had coordinated the program, gathered her family around her as they started walking toward home. She was joined by her husband, Josiah, better known in town as Joe or JB, and their children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. Lena and Ina Stillinger, two young girls who were friends with Catherine, who had also been in the evening's program, came home with the Moores to spend the night. The children were excited after the evening's festivities and Sarah knew that she would have trouble getting them settled down for the night. She couldn't help but smile at their antics and jokes, however, especially after JB joined in with them. The sound of their laughter could be plainly heard as the group walked along and they waved happily at the other families and friends they passed by in their own homes. Everyone liked the Moors and no one who waved and smiled at them that night could have imagined that this would be the last time 
they'd see the family alive. Early the following morning, June 10th, Mary Peckham, the Moore's next door neighbor, stepped out of the back door of her home to hang some laundry on the line. The sun was barely peeking over the horizon, but it was better to finish the outdoor chores early and avoid the heat that came later in the day. Mary went about her business, wringing water from the wash and hanging the wet clothes on the line that stretched across her backyard. As she worked, she had a clear view of the Moore house next door, but thought little about how quiet the place was until she finished with her chores and noticed that the clock in her kitchen now read 7 a.m. She suddenly realized that not only had the Moors not been outside to start their own chores that morning, but that the house itself seemed unusually still. This was very strange since J.B. Moore always left early for work and Sarah was always up at dawn to start breakfast and the day's chores. The Moore house was full of young children and so the morning hours were always loud and boisterous. Could the Moors be sick? Mary waited for a few more minutes and then decided to go next door and check on her friend Sarah and the rest of the family. She approached the house and knocked on the door. It was eerily quiet inside. She waited for a few moments and then knocked again. Once more, there was no answer. She tried to open the door thinking she might poke her head inside and call for Sarah, but when she pulled on the door handle, she discovered it was locked from the inside. It seemed hard to believe, but apparently the Moors had decided to sleep late this morning. Mary walked back through the yard deep in thought. It seemed so unlike the usually energetic family, but who was she to pry? Mary went out to the barn behind the Moore house to let the chickens out into the yard. She felt it was the least she could do to help Sarah, who she was now convinced must be under the weather. After she let out the chickens, Mary went back into her house and tried to get back to her own work. But the more she thought about the silent house next door, the more she worried. Finally, when she could stand it no more, she placed a telephone call to JB's brother, Ross, who promised to come over as soon as he could. When Ross Moore arrived at his brother's house, Mary met him in front. She'd knocked again, she told him, but no one had answered. Ross tried the door himself and peered into a window. It was too dark to see anything inside. He returned to the door and banged louder, then called out to his brother and sister-in-law. Again, there was no answer. Ross produced a set of keys, looked through the ring until he found the right one, and opened the front door. As the door swung open, he stepped inside with Mary right behind him. She stopped at the entryway, though, and did not venture into the house. Ross looked around. He saw no one in the kitchen. He called out, but there was no answer. On the opposite side of the parlor was a door that led into Catherine's bedroom. He carefully opened the door and looked inside. Ross nearly cried out when he saw the two blood-soaked bodies on the bed and the dark stains on the sheets. He didn't look to see who was lying there. He ran back to the porch and shouted for Mary to call the sheriff. Someone had been murdered. Ross collapsed onto the edge of the porch, trying to understand what he'd seen and what might have happened in his brother's house. His hands were shaking and he felt his breakfast churning in his stomach. Mary hurried back to her house and telephoned J.B. Moore's farm implement store. Ed Selly answered, and he told her he'd just seen the city marshal, Hank Horton, walk past. He'd catch him and would be there as soon as he could. Ed, who was JB's most senior and trusted employee, had spoken to Ross earlier that morning. After Mary had telephoned Ross, he'd called the farm store to ask if anyone had seen his brother. Ed had not, but he did send another employee, a young man named Carl, to the Moore house to milk the cows. Ross was still sitting on the front porch when Carl arrived. 
Ross told him he didn't need to worry about milking the cows. Something terrible has happened here, he told him. The small town of Villisca had received an unwelcome visitor on that dark night in 1912, leaving the town marred by a horror unlike anything it had seen before or since. Over the years, the brutal slains have earned a place in infamy and remain the most famous in a series of murders that were committed across the prairie during that era. You see, Villisca was not the first time that the monster who committed those killings had tasted blood. He blazed a terrible trail across the Midwest in the years before and after the Villisca slains, using the railroads to carry out his horrific deeds. This is the story of the Villisca axe murders and the famous haunting that followed them. But it's another story too. It's a story of madness, murder, horror, blood, and the so-called transient butcher who wreaked havoc across the Midwest and then vanished into history. His name and face forever unknown. Only his dark legacy lingers with us today, a legacy of one of the bloodiest unsolved murder sprees in American history. It didn't begin in Iowa. It had its start in Texas. Every serial killer starts somewhere. I believe that the butcher that the newspapers would eventually dub Billy the Axe Man first struck on March 21, 1911 in San Antonio, Texas at the home of a man named Louis Cassaway. Louis was an African-American Creole man who was born and raised in New Orleans and moved to San Antonio in 1876 or 1877. He was respected in political circles, was a member of the laborers board, and worked as a porter and messenger at City Hall before taking a job as custodian at Grant School. He was well known around the community, was a musician, and appeared in the local newspapers a number of times during the years he lived in San Antonio. In 1899, he was lauded for his organization of a Juneteenth event to celebrate the end of slavery, and he was an active member of the Republican Party. In 1895, his name was listed as part of a group that thanked the mayor for taking down wanted posters of local rapists, which were creating a motive for racial violence. Lewis also had a high-profile social life. His 36th birthday made the newspapers at the top of a list of local events. In 1898, a close friend who was a famous Cuban war veteran stayed with him, earning him another mention in the papers. Lewis's wife, Elizabeth, was from Hallertsville, Texas, a small town about 100 miles east of San Antonio. Born in 1874, she was married at the age of 15 to a man named Lane, who abandoned her a short time after the wedding. The next year, she moved to San Antonio and began working as a seamstress. In this new city, she met Lewis and the two of them fell in love, despite the fact that she was white, which made things difficult for them. Unable to get married in Texas, they went to Mexico. Legal proceedings were begun against them, but because Lewis was so well-liked in the community, a grand jury declined to indict him. And by all accounts, they had a happy marriage. And by March 1911, they had three children, Josie, age six, Louise, age three, and Alfred, who was five months old. After Josie had been born in 1904, Lewis cut back on his political activity, left his job at City Hall, and took a position as custodian at Grant School, a segregated elementary school for African-American children. On March 22nd, when Lewis didn't come to work, the principal at the school, Mr. Tarver, called his brother-in-law, 
R.A. Campbell, to check on him. Lewis's sister was married to Campbell, a local attorney, and they lived in a house that adjoined the Castaway home. Campbell was also Lewis's landlord. When the telephone rang at the Campbell home, it was answered by a Mrs. Drake, who rented rooms from the Campbells. She had a young son who often played with the Castaway children and sometimes spent the night with them. On the evening of March 21st, Josie and Louise had been playing outside with the Drake boy, but around sundown, Mrs. Drake went over to the Cassaway house and brought him home. It was a casual decision that undoubtedly saved his life. Mrs. Drake took the call from the school and then went next door to check on the Cassaways. She knocked loudly, but there was no answer. She went back and got Mrs. Campbell and she circled the house, calling to her brother and his family and knocking on doors and windows to try and find a way in. But the house was locked up tight. The windows were mostly covered, but from what she could see, it was very dark inside. No one was moving around. Alarmed now, she hurried back home and got her husband. Campbell, unable to get into the house through any of the doors, finally pried off a screen and forced open a window. When he opened it, a bed pillow fell out. It had been blocking their view of the inside of the house. With it out of the way, he could see inside and immediately spotted the bloody bodies of Lewis and Elizabeth on the bed. He ran back immediately to his house and called the police. Officers from both the police and sheriff's department soon arrived. There were dozens of men at the scene. Even in a town that has seen as much crime as San Antonio had in years past, few officers had ever witnessed such brutality. The Cassaways were all dead. All five had been murdered with the blunt side of an axe which had been left behind in the house. The walls of the house were spattered with blood cast off from the swinging of the axe. When the police had arrived at the house, they found the back door had been jammed shut, not locked. The killer had apparently jammed the door, wedging something into it so it would be difficult to open. On the evening of March 21st, it had rained, starting around 11 p.m., and yet the police found no mud or water tracked into the house, just footprints leading away from the back door. They believed the killer must have entered the house before the rain started, or possibly hid inside, unknown to the family, and only left after the killing was finished. The neighbors had seen and heard nothing unusual. The crime scene would become a very familiar one in the years to come, with only a few exceptions, as we'll discuss in a moment. I believe that it was in San Antonio that the Axeman began his signature murders, developing more in the years that followed. The newspaper, the San Antonio Light and Gazette, described the scene like this. That the person who committed the crime was deliberate in his work of slaughter is shown by the condition of things found upon the arrival of the officers. The faces of Lewis Cassaway and his wife were found covered with a cloth. In the window near which Lewis Cassaway lay, a pillow had been placed. A pillow was also found in the window near the head of the woman, and a blanket had been spread across the north window of this room. Josie Cassaway was killed while lying on the bed nearest the wall of the north room, as shown by the blood at that spot. The body, however, had been picked up afterward and thrown near the foot of the bed, the head being bent back further than was the larger portion of the body. Other conditions found in the room indicated that the murderer was in no hurry to leave. In each killing, the blunt end of the axe had been used. The Castleway murders were the first in the series, and what the police found there will become familiar to the constant listeners of the season to come. Here are the things that you'll want to remember. The entire family was killed with the blunt side of the family's own axe, which was left at the scene, covered in blood. 
Second, the faces of Lewis and Elizabeth were covered with cloth. Eventually, it would be the faces of all the victims. Third, the windows of the room were covered with blankets and clothing. In this case, he also used a pillow. But whenever the windows were not fitted with curtains, he used whatever was at hand to cover the windows over. Next, an oil lamp was found, its chimney removed, and the wick turned down. Next, the killer remained behind in the house for an unknown length of time before leaving. We don't know why he did this, but later he would eat food that he found in the pantry or perhaps when leaving after the sun came up, would wash up before he departed. In each case, nothing was stolen from the house because, well, robbery was not the motive. He simply wanted to kill. When he left, he made sure that the house was locked, possibly to delay the discovery of the crime. In those days, especially in smaller towns, very few people locked their doors. Violent crime was an anomaly outside of the big cities and people believed they were safe. Tragically, far too many discovered this belief was wrong. The most important element to the crime is that these murders set the stage for the killer's use of the railroad to get from town to town. The railroad line ran just two blocks away from the Castleway house. When I first began researching the Axeman killings in the early 2000s, I never connected this crime to the others because the Axeman wasn't known for taking victims in a large city. San Antonio had a population of about 100,000 people at the time. But further research discovered that the Cassaways, who lived at 417 North Olive Street, then lived on the edge of town. The railroad line coming in from the north just clipped the edge of the city. The killer could have left the train, committed the murders, and fled the area, never realizing he was in a large city. Or perhaps he did know, because he never struck in a large town again. The police investigation went nowhere. Detectives floated a number of theories, first believing it was a revenge killing. Several years before, Lewis had been involved in a conflict with another man, and that man had threatened his life. His feet were just about the right size to fit the footprints in the mud, so he was arrested within a day of the murders. But nothing actually tied him to the crime, and he was soon released. Other detectives suggested it was a racial murder and that someone was driven mad by the fact that Lewis was black and Elizabeth was white. But there was no evidence of this either. Lewis was well-liked, and his neighbors were accepting of he and his wife. The police simply couldn't understand how someone could kill three small children with an axe, so it had to be Lewis the killer was after. But it wasn't. The Axeman simply wanted to kill. We'll never know how he chose his victims, but we do know that the Cassaway family were the unlucky ones on his list in March of 1911. They were the first, but they would not be the last. In our next episode, we'll return to the town of Villisca and introduce the cast of characters that played crucial parts in the horror that began on the night of June 9th, 1912. And we'll also travel back to September of 1911 when the Axeman continued his bloody series of crimes in Colorado. Be sure to leave the lights on and leave the doors locked. There's much more terror to come. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. 
They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listen to the end. Yeah. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey. Hey, just glad to be here and be a part of the new golden age of audio. Yeah, as they call it, it's really podcasting. Um, it's so made it's a, it's radio made a is dead. So yes, yes, it's, it's funny because you know like, who listens to the radio anymore? It's too bad because I mean that was a you know such a great form of entertainment in 1935. I mean, actually, when I, I was guess. a kid, it was great, but now you can stream anything you want to, did including you, podcasts. Did you so. like listen to radio shows like as a Thing? Was that like? Oh a, well, I you know I'd listen to some of the old ones now, but I'm not quite that old. I don't I don't so. know when this was a, <laughs> yeah. was a thing. Yeah, it was like the 1930s. So you're not yeah, that old. No, I'm not that old. Okay, so did, close. So, but that was a thing, close. right? Where people get together. Yeah, on oh, yeah, Sunday absolutely. Night and whatever. there's a lot of really great shows still out there. I mean, if you can track them down and find them, I mean, you know, uh, suspense and I mean, there were some really cool shows that were a lot of fun, you know, to listen to, and that was theater of the mind. It yeah, pre TV. Good stuff. So, I, you know, we're we're doing that now. We're bringing back, you know, and a thing that you can sit and listen to again. You know, you yeah. Know, and without you know all the nine thousand commercials and weather reports and traffic every fifteen minutes, because who needs it? You've got it on your phone, right? You know, you put on your Waze app. That'll tell you about traffic. Why do you need to listen to the radio? That's so. very true. It's interesting because like it's such a, there's such a huge push for video now and then we're yeah. getting into augmented reality virtual reality but then podcasts yeah, are podcasts just are on the thing. rise that's yeah, the thing 
That's so, so crazy. So we're back with yes, season three. We are. We are back. We have been. Believe it or not, we actually have been working on this. Yeah, Hopefully, it doesn't it comes feel, across. It doesn't feel like this is like a renaissance or a comeback. No, or it just feels like we've been do- we've been doing something the entire time. It's just we haven't been putting out new episodes. Right and now, we are. And and if you're asking when this season's going to end. I have absolutely no idea. That's fair. You should I, I don't come to know how. That. Yeah, I don't know how long it's going to go, but um, it's it's going to go, and it's been really enjoyable putting it together so far. So. Yeah, I've been really excited to uh, read this book. It's been keeping me up at night, and uh, <laughs> that's the idea. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully gonna, the podcast will do the same. We're going to get into that, but with the new season, we have a lot of new announcements and new things. We uh, do, and we will do them quickly. Yes. Um, well, first because, and foremost, we're. I mean, we don't want to have too much, you know cringe-worthy, you know, dialogue right. here. So Yes, thank as, you. We, we appreciate all of your iTunes reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so we have the uh, new Patreon, so we've rebuilt a, a lot of the tiers. There's a lot of new fun stuff on there, so check that out at patreon.com. Focusing it, mostly just now on the podcast. Yeah. We, we decided that that was the way to go with it. Everything else is really busy, and the podcast needs your love. Yes. So uh, but that's that's why we switched some things around. Right, and we wanted to give people more of what they want. Exactly. And, uh, so, yeah, exactly. so patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Uh, we also have, as you just heard, some new music. Uh, that was courtesy of Charlie Brockus. It was recorded at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton. And it's actually the same song uh, as before, just done in a uh, very different way. Different way. Yeah, that we felt fit this season better. Yeah, so new music, you know, new mood and all that. Uh, we also have a new clothing store, so you can find that at AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. And uh, I'm already trying to turn up some designs. Troy hasn't seen any of them. So no, but we we'll did see. have Leah had on one of the new ones at Dead of Winter. Yeah, uh, some people were asking about it, too. And people were asking about it. So it'll be available in the shop. Yeah, so, so there'll be a lot of different um, different colored shirts and uh, different sweatshirts and sweaters. I mean, they're not just, all black. They're not all black. <laughs> I know, I know, right? And it's funny, I actually picked up some shirts as we were going to take pictures, and uh, Lynn was there, and he said, don't you already have enough black t-shirts? Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're totally right. Um, so do you want to kind of, can we just get into how this season's going to go down, how it's a little different than what we've done before? Yeah, with this, this season was designed to be one story. Um, with the past seasons of the of the show we've always done locations and then it's multiple episodes of different locations and then um you know sometimes we'd have a big run of like the the limp episodes and the the exorcism episodes a lot of a lot of the same thing but this is actually going to be one complete story from beginning to end or, or or end as well as it ends and um the idea of it is to introduce not only, as, as you heard just now, is to introduce the, the serial killings as well as the Velisca story, which is a big part of this season's podcast. And so we'll be doing both in every episode uh, for quite a while. Uh, and then uh, eventually it will strictly go to Velisca, and that will get into all the details because things went on for years yeah. uh, there. And so we'll talk about a lot of different things. But it's, it is going to be a different kind of season than we've ever done before. Yeah, and I think, you know, people that listen to us because they like the history, there's obviously going to be a lot of that. People that like ghost stories, there's still some of that. And then I think probably a lot of our fans just like true crime a lot of in too. general. Right. Um, I'm just going to get this out here now, and I'm only going to say it this one time, but there's I'm just going to give a trigger warning for this because in the past we've done mostly ghost stories, um, and, you know, there's usually deaths and things involved in this, but this is going to be different, and this is going to be 
more difficult to deal with because it's brutal and it's yeah, upsetting. It is. It, but it's I think it's important that we talk about these things. One, I'm interested. But two, as you know, going in, these crimes just weren't solved. And, right. And right. I think, you know, it's important to to dig into that. And I think we can safely say he's not still out there. But yeah, probably still, not. But there are 100 people just like him that have taken his place. So I don't know. I guess it depends on how you look at it. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to start with Velisca, but we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. But we'll keep building the Velisca story yes. throughout the season. Um, I'm curious, just to start off, uh, we were just talking about it before we started recording. But why do you think as like a society, like the, we have such a fascination with true crime and things like that. And it seems, I don't know if it's seem, it's on the rise or maybe I'm just more aware of it now, but it's, it seems you know like what? Obsession. It's been around for a long time. I mean, you know, you can date it all the way back to, I mean, you could date it back to the 19th century and some of the stories and things that happened then that people were fascinated with. It's just, we didn't have the same kind of media uh, or broadcast opportunities then at, like we do now. I mean, a, a case, well, let's just say Jack the Ripper. You know, I mean, this was in the newspapers every single day, and it just, you know, it galvanized the entire country of England and then, you know, bled over here, so to speak, onto our shores as well. People became fascinated with that story, and the only way to communicate it then was newspapers or cheaply printed little, you know, dime novel kind of things. But those have been the biggest sellers in history. True Crime is one of the biggest booksellers there have ever been, if you date it back to the time of you know, the little penny dreadful books or then, you know, the papers that were done or the uh, books that were written later on or then the pulp magazines of the 20s and 30s. I mean, true crime has always been with us and people are fascinated by it. And I mean, I'm one. I mean, I've always been fascinated with it and I've been fascinated with ghosts too. So I've spent a good part of my work and writing career putting those two things together ghost stories and crime stories because you you don't have you don't have a, a any good crime story there's always a ghost story attached to it it's right. not just one thing i mean it always almost always has something that goes along with it so i've always tried to combine the two and i think that this this story and this season will be something that I think people will enjoy because of the combination. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's, um, you know, our fascination with our own mortality or just, you know, uh, people uh, like to be scared. People like to be scared. It's funny because there's a book right here called The Thrill of Fear. Yeah, and yeah, I think that yeah. kind of sums it, it up. It is. And it does. And people have always liked to be creeped out. They've always liked being scared. And I, one of the things I also that I have found as somebody who, and we talked about, we didn't talk about this specifically, but everybody knows we've been talking about horror films and some of our time off. And that's something that's always been a passion of mine. But you'll find that what becomes popular in our culture when it comes to horror and, and people being scared um, is it reflects what's going on in our country. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in 1931, uh, the film Dracula was released and people don't realize it ha that hasn't been that long ago, but there was no horror genre as far as movies go back then. Nobody could imagine why anybody would want to go see a movie like this. Um, sure. There were, had been other things like the old dark house, the cat and the canary, but those were always like a Scooby-Doo thing where, you know, it always turned out to be some guy. Right. Well, here was a supernatural film with no explanation other than this guy's a vampire. And then you had, Frankenstein, and then you had the Wolfman, and then all these things started to come along. But that reflected the time. 1931, we were in the middle of the Great Depression. This was a horrible, there were horrible things going on in our country. 
Um, and you can bump that ahead through decades. You know, you get into the 50s, people are terrified of communists and the nuclear bomb. And then suddenly you've got things like Godzilla, creatures that are created by nuclear bombs. Mm -hmm. So the, the horror genre has always reflected, and in true crime and, you know, the paranormal, has always reflected what's going on in our country. I think there's, I think, I do, it doesn't take much to understand why horror is again on the rise in America. Yeah. Because it is reflecting the fears of our country. Right. And that's what we go to for an escape. You know, we, we want what's in a book or what's on our TV or our movie screens to take us away from what's going on in real life and horror has always been a great escape. And like I said, it, it always does. It, it truly reflects the time. That's very, that's very interesting and very insightful. Thank you for sharing that with me. So you said every serial killer starts somewhere and you believe that this one who we will refer to as Billy, the ax man started on March 21st, 1911 in San Antonio, Texas. So this story is not even in your book. No, it isn't. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, I was, after I had written uh, the second edition of the book even, I was um, doing some research on it because it just, I find, I find <laughs> axe murders fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we did, uh, my friend Renee Cruz and I did a book called Fear the Reaper, which was all about like farm murders. I mean, like rural type things and, and hauntings that went along with them. And um, I found that axes were like the number one murder weapon in our country, not because people were crazy to chop people up, but because everyone had one. They're readily available. Yeah, it was. They were so readily available because everybody chopped wood back then for your fire. I mean, that was how you heated your house for the most part. If you lived in a big city, maybe you used coal, but most people in smaller towns, you know, always had an axe. There were so many uses for it, not the least of which was cutting wood, but it was, you know, you know that's how you, you got your, your chicken dinner on Sunday. You had to go out and find a chicken, take its head off. Yeah. So everybody had hatchets and axes. So anyway, I was looking into some other axe murders and this, I mean, I don't want to go down into this rabbit hole, but there were these murders that took place. Uh, the, uh, the church of the sacrifice murders and people call them the voodoo murders and you know all these different things and it was a bunch of axe murders and there have been some really wild numbers thrown around that you know 49 people died in this murder spree but nobody could connect them and anyway it's kind of an ongoing project for me but while I was working on that I found that it ran in 1911 I ran across this story and I didn't put two and two together until I just recently started digging back into those axe murders again. And when I did, I started finding all of these similarities to the other murders and realized that this must have been where he started because of the, as I, as I pointed out in the story, there were those, I, I don't know if you'd call them criteria, but signatures, the things the that MO he did. Yeah. The, the things that he did and then would do over and over and over again in all these different crime scenes. And um, so here they were, but, a lot of it didn't fit. I think my biggest problem with it originally and why I never noticed it is because it took place in San Antonio. It was just too big of a town. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I mentioned that in the, in the monologue that, you know, I, the town was just too big. And so it didn't fit because everything else had been pretty small. Yeah. Uh, some and increasingly smaller as it goes on. Uh, but in this particular case, I mean, San Antonio was a pretty big city at the time. And I thought, well, it just, this it just doesn't fit. But it does fit. It all makes sense, especially when you realize, and I had to get on 
good old Google Earth. Yeah. See, these were things I didn't have, you know, years ago when I started this stuff. And um, I got onto Google Earth, and sure enough, I mean, this place at the time was right on the edge of town. I mean, someone could literally get off the train two blocks from their house and not realize you were in a big city. You know, especially if you just walked back and got on another train going in an opposite direction, you'd never know that you were, you know, in a, a town with 100,000 people at the time. Yeah, and it's it's what's weird, too, it's, it makes it more scary for me because it seems like it's just this little person out there that wants to cause mayhem and, and inflict violence. Absolutely. And they just get off a train, and then it's it's kind of like the strangest thing, because you were home. Yeah, thing, right. It know? is. It is. Indiscriminately killing. There's no, yeah, there's no, we, we don't, there's nothing to explain how he chose the places. It's almost like you said, because you were home, or maybe because you weren't home at the time. Right. Because it seems that in most cases, he managed to get into the house without people knowing it. Or... As we'll find as it goes on, there are actually a couple of times where he does break in mm-hmm. or, or even attempts to break in in one situation. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get to that later yeah. um, in later episodes. But in this particular one, um, it's impossible to say if he just broke in. I'm going to say he didn't because of the mud. You know, right. it rained at 11 o'clock, and, and the only way he could have gotten in there was to go in before that, which if the family was out, which – there's no record to say one way or the other. Yeah. But if they were, he could have easily gotten inside and hid. And um, and then, because that, when we get to that part of the story of Aliska, that's exactly what I believe he did. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, it was one of those, those things that I, I guess, maybe that's one of the things that appeals, the story appeals to me so much is because it is so random. And so, but that way, that's what makes it scary Yeah, is because it is so random. We don't know why he chose the people he did. We only know that he just wanted to kill people Yeah, and did it because obviously it was a compulsion. Look at all the things he left behind at each scene. You know, these were, those are, those are compulsory things that he did um, because anyone in their right state of mind would have assumed that eventually someone would catch on when you do the exact same thing. Well, he didn't, I don't think he even knew he was doing the same thing. I just think it was a, a habit, a compulsion that he had to do these things and leave them behind. Or, or, you know, in the case of the oil lamp, that was, that made it easy Yeah. because you could, he covered the windows, turn on an oil lamp down low. So at two o'clock in the morning, no one would wonder why someone was moving around the house. You know, if you had all the lights on it, too, somebody might wonder why, especially in a small town. Yeah. Uh, in this particular case, you know, um, nobody could see in because he'd already covered the windows and he kept the light burning so low that, you know, and we'll we'll talk more about that later. But yeah. this is this is sort of just the introductory, but introductory to all of this. But you can see what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the serial killers, people ask me because, you know, I, I really like this stuff and we I talk about it all the time with people. It probably freaks them out, but people say, you know, hey, who's your favorite serial killer? And I don't like that term. I'll well, say, I'll yeah. say, this is the one that intrigues me the most. Yeah, that's and it, probably it's, a better way to put it. It's the people like, um, like a Richard Ramirez or um, over in Russia, there was Andre Chikatilo who don't have a like a set kind of victim. You know, it's just indiscriminately, like I said, just killing anyone and everyone because those are so terrifying. Yeah, you can't yeah. predict whether you're in the no. the pool or not. You know. Uh, oh, geez. Okay, so it, it was interesting to me, too, and maybe it's just because of how the railroad worked, but I wonder if he was just getting off at the stops and then 
just going for it or was it like the risk wasn't great enough so we just kept going to smaller and smaller you know towns maybe or maybe the, the maybe in the first couple the risk was became too high um and we'll we'll talk more about that in the second episode because there's another story um i believe someone actually saw him that night and that's only happened that one time and so maybe he just kept reducing the risk of getting caught. I don't know. I mean, you know, with the railroads, I mean, they came through all of these towns on a regular basis. And that's one of those things that as, you know, modern readers, modern listeners, we have to wrap our heads around the fact that, you know, people didn't, we today don't have the same kind of situation with railroads that they did at that mm-hmm. time. I mean, that was how everybody traveled. Um, there were very few cars you know, in 1910, 11, 12, around that time period, there were very few cars. And um, most people used horse and buggy. And if they needed to travel any great distance, they took the train. I mean, you might take a train just to the next town, the way that we would go somewhere to, you know, uh, let's say, you know, I'm in Jacksonville, and I want to go over to Springfield. Well, the train ran daily. Mm -hmm. I mean, every hour, you could take a train to Springfield. And so people don't, now it's harder for us to wrap our heads around that, but the trains were moving and they were traveling and that was the main way to go. But I don't think he probably traveled by, you know, passenger coach. I'm going to say he was of the, you know, the, the hobo transient era of guys who hit hitched rides on trains in boxcars. Um, you know, that was still a very, you know, common thing at, at the time period of these murders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something I want to talk about uh, this season a lot too, is having you help me um, understand like the, the mindset and of of the time pretty much and how things worked, because I'm going to have a lot of questions. You're going to be like, well, of course. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know for for me who, you know, and I spend, you know, all day, every day writing about, you know, nine times out of 10 stuff that's taking place in, you know, a hundred years in the past, you know, at least. So, um, it becomes really common stuff for me. Mm-hmm. Plus, I'm older than you are, and I remember the tail end of some of this stuff. Yeah. You know, I, we used to take the train a lot more often than I do now. You know, I'm now I just maybe take the Amtrak to Chicago, but there didn't used to be yeah. Amtrak. You know, there didn't used to be were a lot of rail lines. I mean, it, the, but the interstate system put that out of business, kind of like it did Route 66. Yeah. You know, um, this, something comes along that changes everything. But, yeah, you know, anytime anything like that comes up, tell me, and we'll we'll definitely talk about it. Okay, before we get started, we have a 10-second ad. Go. 10 seconds, here we go. New Patreon rewards, patreon.com slash American Hauntings. New spooky shirts, AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. Sponsor an episode, AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com slash sponsor. Now back to the show. Well, so let's dive into this first murder. Um, so you mentioned that there's this couple, it, it's an interracial couple in Texas and they were unable to get married at the time. Right. And you said that, so they went to Mexico. The law. Okay. So yeah. that's why they you said there were legal proceedings that begun. When they came them. home, somebody filed charges against them Jesus. Uh, because they had gotten married and in Texas, it was illegal for a, you know, black man, white woman, or vice versa to be married. And, um, but he had so many friends and was so well liked by everybody. The grand jury wouldn't indict him. So right. the whole thing just kind of got blown off the, which again, you know, at the end of this, when they start, the police are trying to figure out this crime and they think, Oh, it must be a racial thing. You know, that must've been the problem, but that wasn't the problem because none of his, he didn't have anybody who was causing problems for him. That's, that's the, one of the weirdest things about this. The newspaper articles that accompanied this crime is there is no trace of racism 
in these stories, which is very odd. Yeah. Um, and very uncommon for the time. But he was so well liked. And, you know, and that's the thing. It's you, you, you can easily get off on a tangent with these people's personalities mm-hmm. um, because and you have to you have to understand the victims. But to the axe man, they were meat. I mean, he right. didn't care anything about their personalities, but all this stuff came around and you learn their histories and things because that was the way that they, the only way they knew to investigate the crime. Yeah. You no, know? it makes sense as so, a place to start, especially yeah. with all those circumstances. It makes me wonder too, um, you know, I wonder if he was just going into houses, not knowing anything about what he was up against, how many people. I'm thinking no. You think he I'm did some uh, that he recon had watched them for a little while to find out who lived there first. Okay. Um, because... That I mean, there are a couple instances where, uh, again, I'm, I'm getting ahead of the story. There are a couple of instances where he chose poorly, mm-hmm. uh, but in this particular case, you know, he 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 chose his perfect target range. I mean, yeah. this is what he wanted, right? And so you said by by all accounts, they had a happy marriage, uh, three children, uh, six, three, and five months old. Yeah, and then on uh, so March twenty first, twenty second, somewhere in there. Um, Again, trigger warning, the whole family is killed. Uh, and and so there's a couple different things, the reason you think that this is Billy the Axe Man, but there are a few key, I don't know if, if, MO, if MO is the correct terminology or what, but there's just a pattern of things that follow, like pillow blocking the window. Um, yeah, that was a case of where, you know, as we'll find in the, the, the stories to come, that these became his... Signature. Modus operandi. Yeah, that's that's what they became. You know, covering the window in any way he could. You mm-hmm. know, they had some curtains, but it didn't block enough. So he stubbed, shoved pillows up in there, and that kind of hid anyone would be able to look in from outside. I, my my guess is, and and again, we can't know this for sure, but my guess is is that that would delay the discovery till he was on his next train and on his way out of town because you can't. You know, I doubt he kept a timetable of freight trains in his pocket. Yeah. So it would be whatever train was moving in the direction he wanted to go. But, you know, back then, again, there were so many trains. It was it, it's not like now where, you know, a train might come through your town twice a day. It'd be 25, 30 times a day uh, because that's how busy the railroads were. So he was going to get a ride out of town, but he didn't know how long it would take. So the longer he could delay the discovery, the better. Right. Right. Okay. And then, so there's some other signature things. The uh, faces are covered with a cloth, mm-hmm. uh, like the oil lamp that you mentioned earlier. And then nothing seems to ever be stolen, which right. again is just freaky. There's no, there's no motive for the for the right. murder. It's not yeah, he's, he's not there for to rob anybody. And you know, he has apparently enough to eat uh, and a way to travel, and that's all he wanted. I mean, this guy was. I mean, obviously psychotic. Yeah. Um, but not in a not in a raving gibberish kind of he was way. Functioning. I mean, he was funct- definitely a functioning psychopath. Yeah. And he, you know, had a plan and he was well organized. And, you know, and, but again, these are things that we know of now, thanks to people like Ted Bundy and things. We understand these things better. Right. You know, that these, but back then, no one had any idea. I mean, these, the, the reason nobody put all these murders together is because nobody, there was no central clearinghouse for information back then. So it, it turned out to be a fluke later that people realized that some of these murders did seem to match. And, um, but initially, no one would have any idea 
you know, here's a murder that takes place in Texas and the next murders take place in Colorado. They got no contact between the two. Right, right. You know, the police departments are small and nobody has any way to pass on information back then. So it made it a lot easier to get away with stuff like this. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's funny. There's there's a bit from John Mulaney. And he talks about trying to solve murders back in the day before <laughs> DNA. And he's like, uh, it's like, sir, we found yeah, a before DNA, like 1990. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, really, the OJ trial was the beginning of people and even they, understanding what DNA was. And they had to try to explain that to the yeah, jury. Which and, is and stuff. how he didn't go to prison in the first place. Right. And know? he talks about it. He's like, sir, we found a pool of the killer's blood over here in the hallway. And he's like, hmm, gross. Clean it up. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's exactly. It, that's all exactly. you can do. That's all you could do. Uh, one of the last parts of his. His signature is one of the most upsetting, but they use the blunt end of the axe. Yeah. That just is so brutal and, and so upsetting. I mean, th- I, there's probably several reasons why yeah. this was a thing um, that he did. I mean, you've got something that now is, is a blunt instrument. Mm-hmm. It's no longer sharp because I don't think his intention was to chop them up into pieces. And I even hate to say this, and I even hate to bring it up and make you question how I know this, uh, but it's because I read about it. Okay. But axes have a habit of getting stuck in your skull. Ah, okay. I can see that. So getting it loose again probably would have been tough. Yeah. Or at least tougher. And, you know, when you're in a frenzy and you're killing somebody with a, with you know, a blunt, a blunt object with a handle, which is what the backside of an axe becomes, yeah. um, you're going to want to keep moving. You know, right. I, this guy would this guy would come in and he had to have moved fast. He had because to, yeah. there there's you know people are right next to each other. This these this isn't a big house where he could go from room to room and kill people. This was a small places, place, yeah. and all of them were small places. And he had to be able to kill everybody quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you start with the parents, yep. and then you move your way down to the kids. Um, the fathers always get it first yeah. if they're there. Well, the one that's going to put up the fight, exactly. I guess, yeah, and you work exactly. your way down. And by not using the sharp side of an axe, you've saved yourself some time. That's true so, and you know, really sad. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's disgusting, but it's you know, it makes sense. He had to get messy right i mean there had to be a guy i mean i guess you said but he's not on the, the passenger it's train it's the middle of the night yeah he's not on a passenger train who's going to see him is the is the idea but in the in, and in a couple of places though in a couple of the of situations he actually took the time to wash up right and I do in a couple that. of places he even ate while he was there he Which stayed is... there long enough with you know surrounded by you know just slaughtered bodies yeah. and he's having a meal yeah and that's just adding Washing insult, up, insult had, to injury you know, there exactly. eating your food after that so do you think um i know that you know you're you keep doing research on this I'd, i like to imagine that there's a room in your house i don't know about where it's just whiteboards and like string and thumbtacks and all these different <laughs> like conspiracy things uh, where you're connecting all these but i know you're you're always building on this but i'm wondering do you think this was actually the first or just the first that you could find because of records and, and it's the like first that. that it's the first that i've been able to find i know that there have been others other people who have tried to link other crimes to this same killer, but they just don't match. Doesn't you can't up. take every single axe murder that's happened in the country and try to say they're the same guy or close to it or 90% of them. And I've actually, I've literally seen people try to do that. And there, there is a signature to these crimes and I've never found one earlier than this. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I think this is the first is because it's not the same. It's not exactly mm, the same so as the others. Up there's, getting, yeah, there's, there's some of the things are the same, and then 
other things that aren't or just haven't developed or are not showing up in the reports. Is it refined as right, stuff and yet? you know, starting with the fact that this was a large town. Mm-hmm. You know, we start with that, and that's why I never picked it up. I mean, I just it just didn't connect with me because right. of the size of the community. But you know, and I, I'm not. I mean, I I make mistakes or I don't find stuff too. So there may be older ones than this, but this is the first one that I've been able to find that, that has any kind of connection to the others. Yeah. And by connection, I mean only the killer. He's the only connection because none of the rest of the murders are related in any way. Yeah. So, you mean, right. they're again, they're random, which is another reason why investigators in 1912, 11 and 12 could not put this stuff together. Yeah, I mean, They'd never seen pattern, anything like yeah. it. Yeah. They, they'd never seen anything like it. The closest thing we had, there had been a few um, ongoing murders, you know, of different people using the same methods. I mean, you go back to, of course, Jack the Ripper, you know, and H.H. Well, H. 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 Holmes, Holmes yeah. who, who was a, a killer of greed. He was, he, he killed for greed. He didn't do it because he was a maniac like this right. guy. He, I mean, he did it. Maybe, everything, or? everything had a motive. I mean, it all had a motive. It wasn't random. I mean, we could do, and maybe we will at some point, do an entire season on H.H. Holmes because it's not, it goes well, way, way, way beyond The Devil in the White City. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot more to that story than that. And uh, I've always been fascinated with that one, too. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never, you know, I wrote a book about it, but I've never, I don't, I'm not as, I, I, I hate to say obsessed, but I'm not as obsessed with it as I am say this story really this thing has so many components and so many moving parts and it's it's kind of like the for me it's kind of like the st louis exorcism Mm -hmm. you keep finding new things and um this is this has been the same way because there's so many unanswered questions yeah you kind of know yeah yeah we we have a much better idea of what happened we know what happened to him we know how he ended up Mm -hmm. um you know on the end of a noose so it's not, um, you know, he's not this faceless killer that we'll never be able to nail down. That's this guy. You yeah. know, that's this guy. Hey, well, it's, again, it's only going to get worse from here. And uh, <laughs> I apologize now for the jokes that I make that are not going to be funny, but it's going to happen. Uh, but I'm never making fun of the victims. I want to put that out there. Uh, what do you want people to know about, um, I guess, what do we want to tell them about Velisca now? I know we're going to dive into that more each episode. Yeah, it's, yeah, each, each episode will be a little bit more. This was just sort of an intro mm-hmm. in this one, just to kind of set the stage for how things were found that morning. Uh, but we've got to, there's a lot to establish with Velisca. That's, that's why it's only part of each episode. Yeah, a lot of characters. Um, there's a lot of characters. Uh, there's a lot of people involved, different people. And uh, we'll get more into that. Uh, starting with the next episode, we'll talk about Velisca getting started and who started it and some of the people involved and what led up to the murders. Um, and then we'll go from there. And I, you know, I want to get into as much detail as we can about the investigation, the search, you know, and then the fact that a lot of people forget that, you know, Velisca was not a one time thing. And there were more murders after Velisca, too. Uh, they weren't just before. I mean, we're we're talking about a lot of before and then our next, you know, s- quite a few episodes, but there were some that happened after Velisca too, before they came to an end. Uh, but we're going to talk about everything. Um, the suspects that were convicted, the trials, the whole bit. Um, there's a, the whole Velisca story is fascinating. So it's, it is. Absolutely. And uh, we'll try to record something live for our, maybe a bonus episode because I'm going to be there again in May. So nice. Yeah, okay. So maybe we can uh, do something for that too. So it'd be kind of fun. 
Awesome. So anyway, so that's what we've got that'll be coming up um, in, in the upcoming episodes. Like I said, this thing is going to go on for a while, uh, but I don't think you'll be bored with it because no. there is a lot that happens. Every episode is definitely going to have some something happening that's that's definitely worthy of listening, even if you don't want to listen to Cody and I yammer on. Yeah. At least you'll get the first part of it. So, Well, I just wanted to also mention, I was doing some of the research for this um, before we recorded, and Leah looks at me, and my face was just like mouth agape, and she's like, what? And I was like, you don't want to know. She's like, no, tell me. <laughs> and I just told her some of the ages of some of these victims, oh, and she man, goes, you man. know what? I don't want to know anymore. I know. Yeah, right? It is, so, again, you're going to be, I don't want to say entertained, um, but you're intrigued. Intrigued. There you yes. Go. We will have your attention this season. It's now time for our ghost writers segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at American hauntings podcast at gmail.com. The first letter is from Anthony and he said, Hey, just started listening to your podcast, got to season two. I wanted to know what ghost shows are reliable and which ones are fake. And I think this is a loaded question. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'm going to start off just by saying, it's entertainment, right? And oh, yeah. No it's one wants, just entertainment. No one wants to watch a show where nothing happens. Right. Or, you know. But I didn't know if there were maybe even things um, from years ago when it first got started. I know that you, you've done a lot of these you know, types of shows and different things and had pilots for this or that, the other thing. But I didn't know, were there people that – or were there shows or whatever? You are think we talking right? about like investigation shows? Yes. Okay. Were well, there people that did it right, you think, maybe? Well, I don't know. You know, in the early days when – I mean, the the first investigation show really – I mean, in, in America was, was probably Ghost Hunters when it came around. It was a 2005 or yeah. something. And, you know, it was, um, it was fun to watch mm-hmm. in the beginning because – um, it didn't feel forced, and they were going to a lot of places that people really weren't that familiar with. So that, I think, uh, and, and it wasn't always a ghost. That was the other thing. Okay. You know, there, was, there were a lot of times where they would say that, you know, nothing happened or whatever. And so that made it a little more interesting, I think. Um, but as time went on and, and lots of other shows have come up and kind of, you know, uh, imitated the, what was already going on. And actually, you know, we could go back even further, but we don't have to get into all that. Yeah. But, um, but they were imitating the idea behind it and, you know, they've gotten sillier, I think as time has gone on yeah, because of the pressure, yeah, the pressure of performing, you know, ghosts don't perform on command, but boy, you can get these reality people to do it. And yes. so, I don't know, it, it, I'm not, I'm not a big fan, but you know, one of the biggest reasons, I mean, we watch some of them, we'll have them on sometimes, uh, but the biggest thing for me is not the fact that it's, you know, hard to believe or it's silly or stupid or anything. It's just, you know, sometimes in the evening when I want to turn the TV on, the last thing I want to watch is a ghost show because that's my actual job. Right. You know, so, I mean, I spend all my time, you know, writing, writing scripts and dealing with all of our ghost stuff. And so it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm done with work for now, so I'm going to go turn on, you know, as you always laugh at me, Hawaii Five-0. Yes. You know, kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, or whatever, you know. And so that's the last thing I want to watch, you know. That makes in sense. In the evening. So that's, I'm, I'm probably not your most informed person to ask when it comes to that, because I normally just go, yeah, I just don't watch them. Yeah, so, okay. That's so. fair. Uh, thanks for, thank you for that, uh, email. Next one is from Ian from the UK. This is kind of a throwback to, um, our exorcism episodes from season two, but he said, what do you guys think is the like demon or entity? What do you think is the reason for possession? Like why? It seems like a lot of effort for one kid. It's what they said. And, uh, yeah, well, I could, yeah, I I could kind of, uh, yeah, I could kind of agree with that. I mean, you know, I think you could get a much more 
theological answer to that, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the things that, that people like Father Bowdern believed were that, you know, the the devil was at work to try to break down the faith of, you know, people who believed, and maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's the reason behind it, you know, and maybe there's a target in mind, you know, who who knows? It's probably just I have another, no idea. Uh, because you were home, can Yeah, you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So since, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's what that's what they would believe and, and would espouse. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that's technically what I believe. I think it's a little more random. I think it's about as random as these murders from this episode. Great. So, so yeah, just as terrifying. Yeah. Well, which makes it more terrifying. It does. Really. Yeah. So. And he brings up another another question, but it kind of has me wondering: uh, Why don't angels just sporadically possess people? Can somebody just going out just doing nice things for people? Well, maybe out of they're. Well, maybe they do, or you know, or maybe there are. Well, okay. Lisa, they, Lisa just pointed at me and said, see? Can they come and find about me? what she really meant was that, you know, since I don't believe angels are actually angels any more than I believe demons are actually demons, yeah. um, why couldn't there be, you know, ethereal spirits doing good things too, but maybe not possessing people? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, you know, I, you know, why don't they? I know, it's hard to I say. I think it just shows that... Maybe they do. If, I don't know. I think it just shows that if you are around long enough, like some of these beings, you just get jaded over time. Yeah, right, right. You know, you there start you out with the best of intentions, and it just goes downhill. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, I guess we should wrap this episode up. Um, thanks for listening. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed this kind of intro, really, the very beginning to Season 3. Uh, we have a lot, lot more to go. So um, pass it on. Share it with your friends. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes uh, or, or whatever, and uh, whatever you listen on, that'd be great. And uh, we will see you next time. This episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, so we try to combine this, history, folklore, legend, we imagination, doing this thing. No one and the this. truth to yeah, reveal right, more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. If Cody updates it. (laughs) Remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find our website at americanhauntings.net and also check out our store at americanhauntingsclothing.com and if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week well you can have that you have the chance to support the podcast by checking out our patreon page as a supporter you can get bonus episodes of the show t-shirts great stuff in the mail and more we're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment and with your help we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen take a minute and check it out we think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash americanhauntings You can also find your hosts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along. Until next time, goodbye, so long, and see you later. I know. But it but I think it's not it's not super long.